0: Welcome to Rethinking Humanity interviews. I'm Lacey Delane.
1: Hi, I'm Sonia Lorea. And we are so excited. It is our one year
0: anniversary of the podcast. We have Sherry Turkle with us. Oh my gosh. I don't think can get any
1: bigger than this. So, it's, it's awesome. awesome. I'm super excited, Lacey. Woo!
0: I'm so wow. so excited. yay. <laughs> <laughs> and Victor giving us some. Uh, some fun images there. Oh, look at that! Oh, wow, I love it. It. It couldn't get <laughs> any more fun than that. That's what we want to do today. We we want to have fun, yeah. uh, and uh, we said, "Hey, you know, this is a big deal." We had reached out to Sherry Turkle several months ago and said, uh, "You know, we'd love to have you on." And she said, "I'm writing a book. Uh, I can't talk until after it, um, you know, comes out." And so we said, "Hey, come for our one year anniversary," and here we are today. Oh,
1: Cool, we are right? so fortunate. We're thrilled. We're delighted. We're excited. It's it's awesome. Hi, hi, Tal. Want to
0: say hey to everybody watching on YouTube. Thanks for being here with us. Really means a lot. Uh, before we bring Sherry in, which we're going to do very quickly, I really wanted to take a moment and just show gratitude. Because when we started this podcast a year ago today, I don't know that we thought we would be doing this for a year. Sonia, did you think we would be doing this for a year?
1: Ah, I don't know, because it was right in the middle of COVID, right? I was just yeah. uh, taking it day by day. But it's amazing that we've done a year. It's been phenomenal, Lacey. It's been awesome.
0: Yeah, it's been so much fun. And um, I'm thankful. You know, it's a lot of thanks go to Victor Ho. Uh, Victor, we would not be doing this, as you know, and many of you may know, we would not be doing this podcast without him. If you wanna hear the story of how he tricked me and us into doing this podcast, we did a bonus episode on it, so take a listen. But thank you so much, Victor, for who you are and everything that you've done. Sonia, to you, like this has just been so much fun. There's nobody else I'd rather do this with. I think we work so well together and I really appreciate everything you've done. Been so committed you know, to what we're doing.
1: Well, Lacey, back at you because we couldn't do this without all your hard work and obviously Victor behind the scenes. It's just been, it's been an incredible experience.
0: Yeah. And then the last couple people I want to shout out to Andrew and Evelyn Yang. If it wasn't for my journey with them, I definitely wouldn't have started this podcast. Uh, Zach Grauman and Carly Riley are part of that too. And then of course our mutual friend, Sonia, Richard Berry, he why we met and we wouldn't be here today. So thank you, Richard. And then a personal, friend and someone that I worked with uh, who I lost in December, Pat Mm -hmm. Wells, I definitely would not be doing this without her. So lots of uh, appreciation for where we are today and who's been a part of the process.
1: Yeah, I want to say I'm grateful for all of our listeners. Uh, Specifically, we're going to do a shout out to Cheryl and Steve because they're faithful listeners and hello Anthony I just saw him on the screen (laughs) (laughs) cool
0: so yeah thanks for everybody who's been listening uh we really appreciate it we do want to say we have a big announcement that we're going to make at the end of this interview we're super excited about it so stay tuned for that with that being said I think we're ready to bring in Sherry
1: yes (laughs) hello hi hi Sherry I want to uh introduce you for the audience. Um, Sherry Turkle is the Abby Rockefeller Moss Professor of Social, Science, St- Social Studies of Science and Technology in the program in Science, Technology, and Society at MIT. She is the founding director of the Initiative on Technology and Self, a center of research and reflection on the evolving connections between people and artifacts a licensed clinical psychologist. She is the author of six books, including Alone Together um, and the New York Times bestselling Reclaiming Conversation. Great one. As well as the editor of three collections, a Ms. Magazine Woman of the Year, a TED speaker and featured media commentator. She is a recipient of Guggenheim and Rockefeller Humanities Fellowships, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science. In her latest book, of course, which I have, The Empathy Diaries, <laughs> this vivid and poignant memoir, Turkle ties together her coming of age and her path-breaking research on technology, empathy, and ethics. Thank you.
2: Yeah, here.
0: Thanks for being with us, and um, we are again. We've said it like eight times, so sorry about that. But <laughs> we're so glad to have you. Thank you again for being here. How are you? How? Oh, sorry. <laughs> How are you doing today? And where are you joining us from? It looks like a beautiful sunny day there.
2: Yes, I'm at my, um, I spent most of the quarantine time at, um, in my, in my writing retreat at the beach, which is where I am now in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I just jumped out of the water, so I'm kind of all sort of sparkling and, uh, and um, happy and relaxed. Um I'm here with my daughter and my son-in-law, where I haven't seen for just the longest time. I'm just vaccinated, so I feel comfortable seeing them. So I'm really uh, so grateful and so happy.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, there's several of us that are would love to be at the beach. That's amazing. Yes, yes.
2: (laughs) It's really been a blessing to be able to be with them uh, after not seeing them for so long. So I'm very, very grateful. Very grateful.
0: I'm sure they're super excited as well. Yes, we're all excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, you know, we, we want to start with the Empathy Diaries, um, but I think a lot of what you write about really overlaps our podcast so well, yeah. um, which is obviously one of the r- big reasons we wanted to have you on. But would would love for you to just start with telling us about the Empathy Diaries.
2: Yes. Well, I wrote the Empathy Diaries because I wanted to tie together my personal story with my work. Uh, All my life I've realized that um, my work uh, and my life really were of a piece. And I know that that's true for many people, but it it takes a certain bravery to explain why. And uh, I came to a point in my life where I was ready to, you know, tell that story. And um, so about uh, 10 years ago, I really started to, um, to pull together uh, what there was about my upbringing that made empathy mm. and the way in which technology, in my view, is in many ways attacking empathy. Uh, why... For me, that's just not, you know, a day at the work. You know, for me, that's, that's not kind of like a day at business. That's yeah. really a passionate, that's really a passionate, um, I'm lit, you know, when I go to work. And, um, and I realized that uh, it was because my life was filled with secrets growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had been married. She didn't want anyone to be before, you know, to my father. But when she remarried, she didn't want anyone to know about this marriage. So she had me lie about uh, this first father. She had me lie about my name. She had me use uh, my stepfather's, you know, her new husband's name, even though it wasn't my name. So I had a secret name. I had a secret life. I mean, my life was filled with lies and secrets. And in order to, um, uh, I didn't even know his my father's name. And in order to sort of um, uh, not go crazy, I had to develop some kind of model of why all of these loving adults in my life were behaving in such an odd way to make me tell these secrets, to make me share these secrets, keep these secrets. And so the way I put it in the book, that getting into their heads and trying to figure out what what they could possibly be about, that empathy with them before it was a sort of psychological virtue was a um, survival mechanism. Mm, Wow. so, that I didn't develop empathy, you know, really in the first instance as a kind of loving, uh, in, in kind of a context of a sort of loving relationships, but really as a kind of baby Nancy Drew, you know, to figure out what are these people trying to get me to accomplish and how can I not go crazy mm-hmm. in this environment? Um, and so I, I tell that story because I think a lot of people uh, try to not go crazy in households of secrets.
0: Yes.
2: And, um, and I gradually pieced together what they were trying to uh, accomplish um, and how I sort of took this environment and made the most of it and how it turned me into who I am.
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who have, have struggled with that. I, I myself can relate to that. Yeah. The empathy as a survival tactic. Yes. Really having to try to figure out what are you thinking right now? What do I right. need to do to keep me safe right now yes. and get through this situation? And as you mentioned, it is so courageous of you and of all of us when we share our stories, as you did. I was struck, Sherry, by how how clear your memories were of childhood. Yeah. And I i was thinking, man, I mean, it helped me remember some of my childhood, but I was thinking, yes. I don't remember a lot of my childhood. It seems as clearly as you did.
2: Well, first of all, let me say, I had a lot of professional help. In other words, I've been psychoanalyzed. I'm a psychoanalyst. I, you know, I didn't just kind of like come to it like, oh, you know, and I've been working on this book for many, many years. Uh, the origin of the book, mm-hmm. funnily enough was oh, the first time I wrote a book that kind of got a lot of public attention. I was, it was in 1984, or 85, and I was one of Esquire magazine's 40 young people who were changing, 40 people under 40 who were changing the nation. And they sent a, um, a lovely writer, a young psychiatrist, to um, interview me. And this man came to my office and he said, So tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, tell me about your, you know, your, your mom you mentioned in the acknowledgments, but you don't mention anything about your father. And of course, my father's identity had been kept from my half-sister and brother because they had been told that I was Sherry Turkle. I had was that I we that we all had the same father, which was a lie. And they had, I had kept my mother's secret, even though she was now dead. And I, 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 I couldn't even answer his question that I had a father, another father. I said, "Well, I can't possibly answer that question. You know, I'm only here to answer questions about my professional work. In other words, I act like an absolute lunatic." And I realized in, in the in the Esquire profile, he said, "Well, you know, the brand of Sherry Turkle is the thought and feeling." are one, but when you ask Julie, ask the real Sherry Turkle a question about thought and feeling, she behaves like you're attacking her. So, whoa, you know, what's with this woman? <laughs> and I realized that that was the end to it. That's really where the book begins, that I had to come to terms with my history, I had to, that my work and my my way of being had to be one. And I called up my my half-sister and brother and I said, Look, I do have a different father. The secret has to end now, and I am going to start to write my truth. And that was really the beginning of this very healing process. And little by little I excavated. I found my biological father and I told my, you know, my stepsister and brother about them, about him. And I discovered why my, most important, I discovered why my mother had been keeping him from me. She had her reasons. And I don't know if I want to get, I want, right. I, I want love people to read the book because it's a mystery story, but, uh-huh. but she had her reasons and really writing the book has been my reconciliation with my mother because all my life I had been angry at her uh, for keeping my father from me. And in the end, she had her reasons. And through the process of finding my father, I was able to reconcile with her and realize that she had been trying to save me. She did save me by keeping him from me. And so it's really a story of, finding a father, but a a deeper reconciliation with my mother, and also finding out um, a deep motivation for my professional life. Mm -hmm. So it's been a journey. It's really been uh, an exciting journey that's pulled together my life and my work. I'm very excited about the book and about its reception and how much other people have found of themselves in it.
1: Yeah, I, I was gonna say I love, love the book and I encourage everyone to read it. Like you said, it is like a story, a detective story as you're going through it. Um, I related to it because I think a lot of families have secrets, so I think that's a common theme. Um, also, the empathy part of the book really struck me with your story, specifically one that I'm remembering is when you were in college. And you were confronted or I believe there was some things that were disappearing and yes. they assumed yes. that you were the one taking it. What was so striking about that story is how this woman, young woman, spoke to you and yeah. how you received it. And
0: oh, no. No. <laughs> I think we lost her. She sometimes freezes Maybe. while we're recording.
2: Sonia. Oh, yeah, but I, can, I, I know the question, so I can okay. answer. I, I can answer. Okay. This is actually a wonderful, this is a story of how you have to be ready. I was very isolated in college. I came from a very, um, a lower class family. I'd never, you know, I really didn't know how to use all the forks in the dining hall. I was really, um, and I stood out. I didn't have the right clothes. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't ready for Harvard, that's for sure. Harvard might have been ready for me, but I wasn't ready for Harvard, and um, and I, I felt, uh, you know, academically I, I I I could sort of find my way, but but I I I didn't know what to talk to the other girls about. They rode horses. They had debutante parties. I was, I, you know, I was from Brooklyn, a very, from a working class family in Brooklyn, so um, I was very very shy, and. It was true that in our dorm, there was a thief and we were told that there was a thief and um, that the thief should turn herself in, that, they, that the thief needed help and, uh, you know, that they would, the thief wouldn't be punished, but would get counseling. And I didn't think anything of it until one day at lunch, I realized that people suspected me. And I turned to a woman who I trusted and I asked her if she would speak with me. And I said, why do people, I understand that people think, some people think I'm the thief. You need to talk to me about why this is. I'm not, but you need to tell me why this is. And she changed my life because she, she, she didn't flinch. She didn't say, no, 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 you must be hearing wrong. She said, yes, and here's why. You're so shy, that you come to the other girl's rooms to ask for change for the Coke machine, that you're the person most likely to come and ask for change for the Coke machine. And people think that if you're so isolated, that that's the only way you can connect, that maybe you would connect by taking our stuff too. And I heard her. In other words, I was ready to to hear her and to have a moment when I could imagine how it must've felt like to be in the middle of a conversation and have me appear and ask for change out of nowhere. And I realized how brave she was and I told her so. And then she showed me what true empathy was because she said to me, I think I understand how lonely you are. You know, let's talk about what it would be like for you to just come in and say, hi, what's going on? And I explained to her why I couldn't, that I felt that everybody else had a famous father or a famous mother. She said, I don't care about my famous father. You seem like a really, I'd love to talk to you. And she showed me that empathy is not just putting yourself in the place of somebody else. It's putting yourself in their problem and making a commitment to them to stick it out with them and be there for them when they need you because after this conversation we went to lunch together and sat together and all of a sudden i had a friend and it 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 has stayed with me even telling the story now it it stays with me of in a way mm. how much it takes and how little it takes to be empathic but to be empathic you You can't just kind of like listen a little bit and say, oh yeah, sure, 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 sure. You need that commitment to another person. And of course, I think that in our country now we need this more than ever. We need this active empathy where we really commit to listening to each other's stories. So I I love this part of the book where you, you feel my isolation and you feel that somebody can take action and bring me into a new life. And it changed my life, that woman. She she, she changed the course of my life.
0: It's amazing. And I mean, I think it speaks also to what happens when we're honest and we aren't ashamed of being honest. Right? You you were like, can you just tell me? And she was like, sure, I'll just tell you. Exactly. There was no shame there, which I think we right. really have a hard time. A lot of us have a hard time doing that.
2: Right. You know, when even when I was writing the book, some people who read the book, friends of mine said, are you sure you want to include that story? And I said, well, why do you ask? And they said, well, it really, you know, that you were thought that you might have been a thief. It sort of shows how isolated you were in such a raw way you know, people don't see you like that now. They see you as like some fancy lady, you know, <laughs> really. Are you sure you want to show? And I said, yes, I absolutely want to show myself that way. Hmm. Because there are plenty of women out there, plenty of men out there who, who people would think of as the homes Hall thief. And they're exactly who I want to reach. and I was no more fancy than they are. I just was that isolated. I wasn't a thief. I was just somebody who was so out of the game that the only reason I could think of to come into somebody's room was to ask for change for the Coke machine. Everybody has to know that I was once somebody who had no reason to go into somebody's room except to ask, for change for the Coke machine. Mm. And that that is something that admitting to that is like, it's not only okay, it's important that we were all somebody once who needed, had no, who had no other reason to go into anybody's room except to ask for change for the Coke machine. Mm. I mean, just, I'm tearing up just thinking about the story because it's, and that people were afraid for me to include that in my memoir. I mean, this memoir I talk about, my husband's infidelity, I'm talking about, I mean, the number of things in this memoir that should be embarrassed about, but this is the one that's raw. This is the one that people were like, "Mm, are you sure? Are you sure? Because this is the one. Do you think that that's because
1: people also can relate? That rawness comes out in empathy.
2: Well, uh, we've lost Sonia, but she's asking. You know, with Your grandparents, your protective. mother. People are yeah. protective of me. When people say leave it out, it was because it was out of love for me. It was out of love for me that they wanted to leave it out. It was out of it was mm-hmm. out of caring for me um, that they wanted to leave it out. It was out of caring for me that they thought it showed me as too needy. But I was. I was alone there at school. I had no friends. I didn't think myself of myself as good enough to make a friend. I didn't know if I was good enough to make, I tried, I mean, I, you know, I, I tried out for a play. I thought, Oh, I would try out for a play, but the other people who were trying out for plays were like John Lithgow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) My Classmate, you know, Tommy Lee Jones was a classmate. I mean, these people were like, you know, these were people that studied at the Royal Academy of dramatic arts before they got to Harvard. I mean, I just sort of said, Oh, I want to be in a play. I mean, I was sort of like, so the thing about Harvard is that everything was being done at a, such a professional level. I went to I went to try out. I wanted to be in a, a freshman seminar. And the, the man who ran the seminar said, well, you know, what what quarterlies do you read? And I didn't know what a quarterly was. <laughs> you know, so I was, you know, but, but that's what keeps people, but that's what keeps people, um, um, that's what keeps people out of places of power because they don't know what a quarterly is. They don't know. They don't know what to talk about and as They ask for they they're accused of being the Holmes Hall thief. So I mean, what I had was, uh, you know, I had tenacity and I had a lot of tears in my pillow. So it's the story of, I think, um, you know, this is not a, I mean, I I don't want to say it's a a sad story, but it's the story of a woman who, um, you know, didn't give up. Uh, I didn't give up, I had a lot of tenacity.
0: Yeah. And I would even venture to say that that's probably a very human experience, what you experience, like not feeling sure that you're accepted, especially it's a new environment. You're in college right? or your family wasn't, you know, some well-to-do famous family. So it's to me, it sounds like something that, you know, many people can relate to. And that's the power of sharing it, too. Yes. We don't have to be ashamed of who we are and our whatever. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, we didn't choose it first of all, but second of all, we're all human. And, and to that extent, we all have the same experiences. Yeah. And so I think, I think, I think that could have been part of the pushback too, to have.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And then also I had experiences, you know, the parts of the empathy diaries that I think I'm proudest of and that were hardest to write about, but I think have the most, uh, the most universality uh, in terms of empathy, because I really feel that this empathy thing is what coming out of the pandemic and in terms of healing our country and, and talking to each other. Um, I worked as a clean, I had to drop out of college when my mom died because I just was like, my my stepfather was like he, he wanted me to take care of my younger sister and brother, and I really knew that if I did that, I would and not go to college. And I really knew that that wasn't what my mother wanted me to do. And so I, um, I, I, I just my grandfather gave me enough money to take an Icelandic airline airplane to Europe, and it was like unclear how I would support myself once I got there. But I worked as a cleaning lady in. Canada. And when I was a cleaning lady, the people I was working for called me their Portuguese. They called me their Portuguese because all the other cleaning people were Portuguese. So even though I was a Jewish girl from Brooklyn, as far as they were concerned, I was their Portuguese because it was like a generic for cleaning person. And that experience was very important to me. I think it was very important to have an experience where I was treated as a generic cleaning person, Mm. Portuguese, Mm. I mean, they didn't, they weren't interested in whether I went to Radcliffe or whether I was Jewish or whether I was from Brooklyn or whether I was white or my color skin, I was a cleaning lady, I was a Portuguese. In other words, it was a way of diminishing me by calling me a Portuguese. And I think that having that experience and talking about it in the book really helps people identify with you know what that what that can mean and what could that in how we all need to to identify and think of what that feels like. Particularly now when people are losing their jobs who are treated, you know, oh you're an essential worker. We're just gonna get rid of you. You know, and that means you can lose your job. You know, you're one of these essential workers. That means we can just like get rid of you whenever we want. You know, essential workers means like you can just get rid of you. You're like a Portuguese, you know. To me, you know, that experience. And also that in that time of of living kind of, I, I, I was, I didn't earn a salary. I just was given a room in exchange for being a cleaning lady. And if I lost that job, I lost a place to live. And I think that having that experience also taught me something important about empathy with people who are one job away from not having a place to live. Wow. And, and I, you know, I don't think you have to have these experiences necessarily to empathize, but it's not bad to read about them and stop and think about them and read about them from the, from the pen of somebody you identify with, like me. I'm a college professor. People have read my other writings. They trust me. You know, they know that I'm an honest ethnographer. You know, they know who I am. They've taken my court. You know, they've read other books by me. They can identify. They've, they've seen me. They've seen my TED Talk, you know. And they say, hey, she was like one job away from not having a place to live. I can, mm-hmm. I can get that. I can, I can get that. I can get I can see that. I want to think about that. You know, it's not just people I've never met who've had that situation. Jerry Turko was in that. A lot of people are in that situation.
0: Mm, that's powerful. Yeah.
2: I, that's, th- that's powerful. I, th- I think that's helpful because I think we put people into categories like, oh, I'm like, you know, I'm a professor. I'm like, okay, you know, this one is 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 somebody who's like more like not a professor. They're like,, I don't know that kind of person who might be losing a job. I think it's very helpful when we really read the true life stories of people we identify and, and emulate and want our children to emulate and who are children's professors and teachers and realize what their life was like and how they got to be who they are. So I I, I thought it was very important to tell this story. Uh, and also what it taught me is that I know that since I had a secret story, when I go into any situation and I see the story that I'm being told, I know there's another story because I used to be the secret story. So when I'm being sold a bill of goods, when I'm shown any situation, I used to be the person with the secret identity, who was hiding the family secret, who had the secret name, who had the secret identity. And I think it's very helpful to, to know that when you go into a situation, don't just believe the first story you're told. Mm. There is probably a back story. And that was, that's another message of the book is to Is to look for the story behind the story. Things are not as simple as they seem.
1: I like the fact you bring up this, uh, that we're in this liminal moment. Maybe yes. you can
2: define that
1: for us because that's super powerful. Yes.
2: Well, you know, some people are very depressed right now. They, you know, they, they really, there's so much, uh, this year has been so difficult and we're, uh, you know, politically, and uh, but I—I I mean, I don't even know where to begin. But um, I studied with a, a great anthropologist named Victor Turner, and he—he he talked about moments in history that are called liminal, betwixt and between, where you're between—you're between times that are structured and where people know the rules. And mm-hmm. I feel that our country we sort of knew the rules we had a kind of political structure we had a sense of how to of what was possible and what was not and then covid and the quarantine and isolation and now we're coming out and a lot of people are not playing by the rules I mean, this voter suppression stuff is going back to Jim Crow and I mean, you know, I mean sometimes I look at these rules, you know no water you know, kind of you know sort of, no water when you're voting, you know exactly. 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 I mean, just like you know I mean, you really have to want to wear one of these hoop skirts, you know, to feel like this is like a you know like when was the last time we really you know I mean things that you kind of can't believe um. And people are looking at this and they're saying, well, okay, we are not, you know, a lot of people are not playing by the rules but are pretending that these are rules. Are, you know, we are not in, we don't know what the new rules are. The new rules are up for grabs. And those moments, because if they're not playing by the rules, we're going to do, and you know, uh, excuse me, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what my idea of some new rules are too. Mm. And I feel that there's, so a liminal moment is a time when people don't know what these new rules are going to be. It's a time out of time, like our quarantine time has been. It's a time when a lot is possible, a lot of change is possible, because people are saying, well, I'm not sure how we're going to run our educational system now. I'm not sure how we're going to run our political system now. I don't like this new voter suppression. I have some ideas here. I, you know, I don't like uh, how you know. I have some ideas about you know uh, race, and I have some ideas about women, and I have some ideas about uh, uh, income inequality, and I have some ideas about worker rights, and I have some ideas. But I mean. I have some ideas that now I wanna be heard. Um, And I think that we're just at a moment of tremendous possibility and change. And the thing about these moments out of time, out of normal time is you kind of don't know you're in them when you're in them. Mm. But but they really are moments when new, new combinations are possible. Uh, of young people and old people and people who've been through the 60s with people who've never had a political thought in their life but really say, this, uh, this is not the country I want to grow up in. Um, so I, 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 I feel that that we're very much in that moment too. Plus, um, in, in, in the Empathy Diaries, in my own life personally, I talk a lot about uh, an idea from the same anthropologist called depaisement. Depaisement is decountrifying. You know, I was taken out of Brooklyn and brought to Harvard, and that was a kind of taking out of your country. And you, what, he's, what anthropologists say is that when that happens, when you're taken out of your country, you can see your country better. Yes. Because you're, you, you see it with fresh eyes. It's like you go to Paris and you come back to the United States and you say, why aren't we eating fresh meat? Why is everything processed food? I mean that, that's like the classic reaction to going to Italy. It's like you come back and you say, Why are we eating fresh fruit? You know, what, what what's with all this uh one kind of apple? Why aren't there 30 kinds of apples? You know, what you know what the Italians have uh, 15 different kinds of bread. Why do we have what's like Passover? Why does this not, you know, why do we have just one kind of bread? Why do we you know, I just went to Italy? There are 45 different kinds of apples why why do we just have one apple there are 45 different kinds of berries why do we just have one berry i mean you know you get that sense of infinite possibility and freshness and why is i'm just saying that when you leave your country you come back and you see your country um you go to europe and you come back and you say what why don't we have a socialist party i mean why don't we have a party that's more for worker rights i mean we have workers why don't they have more unions? I mean," So I'm saying that right now, by being at home and watching on television the attack on the Capitol, by watching on television this the attempt to steal the election, by watching on television the Me Too movement and the and the Black Lives Matter movement, watching all of this, you see, you say, you know, I'm not sure that I this was the America that I knew. I'm stepping out of the Fourth of July party a, a parade. I have stepped out of the Fourth of July parade, and I see America fresh. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have had that experience. And between the liminal moment where the rules are breaking, and that experience of stepping out and seeing the country fresh, I think there's the chance for a, a lot of very exciting change.
0: Yes, we we talked about that early on on the podcast when we started that we feel very hopeful that we are in a moment where we can see the realities of how we're living. I mean, part our our whole thing on the podcast is how can we rethink the way we do life to accommodate our humanity, our human needs, our human nature. Yes, We're in too much of a hurry with production and consumption to even think, to stop and think about that. And so we're hoping and discussed early on that this is a window of opportunity for us to go there. Yes. Yes
2: well so, the first people the first thing that people need is you know, and this is what was so interesting about the some of the questions that you sent me you know for to be thinking about mm-hmm. is that uh, about being alone and being together is is that one of the things about loneliness is that that authoritarian people like is that if you're too isolated and don't have community, you were drawn to dictatorship hmm. because you cannot imagine hmm. that you could have enough connection with other people to actually be part of a political movement. Wow. So, Hannah Arendt is one of those people right. who wrote very movingly about that and whose work is just beyond this is just being rediscovered. That she wrote so movingly that, you know, what, what, what. What authoritarian regimes rely on is that kind of total isolation of the individual into a hopeless, a hopeless individuality where you can't even imagine being a citizen. I mean, just being in this interview. You know, and I'm trying to look at the green light because I know that will make for a bitter interview, but I'm looking at your faces because i that's the trouble with Zoom is I know I should look at the green light and I'm looking at your faces because I know because I'm drawn to look at your faces. So apologies to, apologies to all the viewers who I'm not giving an interview to because I'm looking at these women's faces instead of at the green light. I know I should look at the green light. But I'm, I'm sorry, too much Zoom. <laughs> but, I'm, I, but I'm drawn to look at their faces because I like these women and I'm drawn to look at them because already I feel a sense of connection to you so here I am I'm so far away from you mm. and yet I feel a connection to you so I am not so isolated that I couldn't make common cause with you and be a citizen with you for a variety of things that we have in common do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, you know, and, and if we are truly depressed and isolated, we can't do that anymore. Mm. So that's and looking down at our phones and looking down at our phones.
1: Right, right. I, there's something you quote um, also about this loneliness in America by Rising, yes. I think. And I wanted you to speak to that inner directedness versus yes. outer directedness. I thought that's yes. cool.
2: Right. Well, David Reisman, who was a student of Eric Fromm, he picked up something that Eric Fromm wrote wrote about a a shift from being inner-directed, in other words, knowing who you are and having an inner sense of of purpose to being outer-directed and just looking for clues in the environment for who you should be. And both Erickson and Fromm were like, ugh. This is not good for democracy. Everybody is like looking to the outside to figure out who they should be. Mm. That is not, That is not the ideal. And what I've studied in my work is I call it other directedness to a higher power when everybody's on the internet and they don't even feel as though they have a self unless they're being validated by, by the internet. And in my own writing, I say you go from I want to have, a, I have a feeling, I wanna make a call. Two, I want to have a feeling, I need to send a text. Whoa. And that's the, that's wow. a bad, that's a bad jump. You don't even feel as though you are validated enough to have a feeling. Unless you're validated by the connection, mm. you do not want to be in that place. You want people to, and this is where this is where Fromm and where and where Reisman, who are, who were my mentors, Fromm was dead, but Reisman passed on his passed on his um, his ideas.
1: Mm.
2: They, they were such wonderful mentors because they they believed, you know, that that it's in solitude that people develop the capacity for relationship because it's only if you can tolerate solitude and know who you are in a certain kind of being by yourself that then you can turn to another person and say well who are you who are you and that was my big advantage when i entered Radcliffe and had that moment with that woman Lynn when she sat down with me and told me the scoop on whole life, <laughs> is that I, I kind of knew who I was. I knew that I was a very smart, socially inept young woman from Brooklyn who loved reading and writing and loved literature and was very shy and insecure around all these debutante rich people, horse rider people. But I knew who I was. I was—I knew I was honest and clever and had a good heart and had a loving heart. So I wasn't asking her to tell me who I was. I just was asking, am I interesting enough for you to be my friend? And she said, yeah, you're pretty cool. You know all this stuff you're very brilliant. I'd love to talk to you.
0: The the um, ending of your book is uh, titled People Are Not Objects, which is very much, I mean, reminds me of from Man has made himself into a thing. Yes. Um, you know, his book, To Have or To Be, is what we've discussed this past year on the podcast. Um, and that, what you're speaking of, really reminds me of the same thing, you, you know, to have uh, is looking outside of yourself for something to make you feel whole or make you feel who you are, having a self. And then to be is that place of experience, that place of being able to have solitude, being able to be with yourself, being able to know yourself and be self-aware. So to me, it's just amazing the, the overlay that there is there, but also just, I mean, really, really neat to be able to hear from you as someone who's been Basically, directly influenced by Frauma. How much would you say his work and his ideas really are a root, or a foundation, or a strong part of the foundation of your work?
2: Very much, because I was um, uh, my gri- my most uh, my my I don't know what to say. Closest teacher, my my most important teacher, the teacher who gave me, con- I, I really believe in mentors, which is another reason I was going to stick in one other idea about the pandemic. Parents listen to mm. this, that I was doing it. I was in the middle of a study when the pandemic, when the quarantine started about parents' attitudes towards technology. And it was at a point when if a, comp- a tech company said, I have a great Program for you. It's gonna, you know, look at what your child is doing and check all of their keystrokes and give and personalize an educational program for them and give them just what they need and make it super personal. Parents are like, oh, that's really, mm, that's really interesting. If they came to a parent now and said, I have one, <laughs> I have one of those things for you, that a parent now would say, mm, give my child a person, please. Would you just send my child a person? like a mentor. right? So, you know, I think we've learned something about the limitations of what you can do on a screen. I mean, parents now really want their children to have people because they see how much we crave the full embrace of the human. So I just want to say that that's one of the positive things coming out of the pandemic. We talked a lot about the liminality is that we are ready for some people in our children's lives. And we're not going to be such pushovers for just give me a, you know, just send me, just yeah. send me my, you know, my, my program, my personalized educational program. But mm-hmm. what I was saying is for mentorship, for people mentorship, my book is filled with people who helped me, true mentors who said, you are, you are not there yet, but come back again. Come back again. Which is to me the key mentorship words. Come back again, mm. and the main guy who did that for me was David Reisman, who was a student of Eric Fromm's, which mm-hmm. is the Eric Fromm connection. And David Reisman, who was analyzed by Eric Fromm, um, was both a student and his and his uh, uh, and his uh, I believe was his um, analytic patient. Mm. But they had a very close relationship, as well as being his analytic patient, and he. Picked up Fromm's idea of uh, of inner and outer directiveness, and do you get it from letting the world tell you you should be, or can you get it from some kind of internalization and having an inner life? And that um, that that fear that American life was robbing people of the capacity for an inner life and looking too much to an outer life made me so attentive to that when i saw that in online life yeah. I, it like lit me up and i went to him and he was he was an old man at that time but i went to him and i said i see this danger and i just you know i just was able in his later years to discuss that with him and he could see, you know, the direction that I was taking it, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, that is my greatest concern about the about life on the screen is that we we it like takes that danger and mm-hmm. raises it to this higher power that we're constantly looking to a life on the screen to validate us in a way that was not, uh, you know, that was not previously possible because right. the screen you know is is when i was just checking the you know the zoom number i had you know i had my phone was here this i mean everything is always yes with us can can we
0: go there i know we don't have too too yeah. much time left but this is something that i'm so passionate about sonia and i both this issue of course this is really the heart of your work but there's a section of reclaiming conversation that really stands out to me and it is the families 2.0 section
2: yes Yes.
0: And so I just want to read just one little piece here and tie it to empathy and kind of let you talk a little bit about technology and how it's affecting us uh, now in the development of empathy. You say family conversation is where children first learn to see other people as different from themselves and worthy of understanding. It is where children learn to put themselves in someone else's shoes off in the shoes of a sibling. If your child is angry at a classmate, you can suggest that it might help to try to understand the other child's point of view. So family conversations are a training ground for empathy and upset feelings don't have to be hidden or denied. What matters is what you do with them. And the fact that, that it's a place for kids to be able to go back to over and over to be able to learn how to process their feelings And then we have technology that comes in and and interrupts that in such a huge way now.
2: Yeah, and that brings me back. That that brings me back to what I had going for me. The children that I worry the children today don't. Yes. Look! Look at that! Look at how much I when I entered Harvard. I you know I was the. I was accused of being the thief, I, I I was lonely, I was isolated, I didn't know what a polity was, I didn't know what how to dress, I didn't know anything. But I came from a family that had dinner every night. Right. They talked and talked and talked and talked. And I knew, and then I had this secret, that caused me to constantly be putting myself in, the, in everybody's position and what must she be thinking what must she be thinking and it was constant practice in putting myself in the, in the place of the other and that is the experience that you need to give your child parents if you are listening it's not like a one-off thing that you do like on you know I, I just have had the most fascinating conversations about tech shabbat of course, mm-hmm. tech shabbat is wonderful. Of course, do it once a week and give up your of course. How can that be bad? Mm-hmm. But you do it, have dinner as many nights a week as you possibly can without phones. Make dinner time, make anything around food and food preparation and any time in the car, time without phones. And if you Because you need to have time when you literally are looking in each other's eyes and saying, how are you, what happened? How are you feeling? And nobody will tell you how they're feeling if they think they are competing with the whole wide world that's on your phone. Mm. Because the whole wide world is on your phone. And the whole wide world could be famous people, it could be your job, it could be your livelihood. It could be somebody who loves you more than they do or somebody you love more than the person you're talking to. It could be somebody super famous. It could be somebody you rely on for your living. I mean, I, I don't know who's on the phone. It could be, I don't know. It could be somebody who you hate where you really have to get it sorted through. It could be, it could be, you know, the person who's going to clean your chimney. I mean, but the point is, it's the whole wide world. And um, it could be your vaccination appointment. It's the whole wide world. And you've got to put the whole wide world away when you're talking to people, if you're trying to develop empathy with them, and particularly with your children. You've got to give them that opportunity to feel they have your undivided attention. And, and, if, and we've, it's, it's just not even a, it's not even a, you know, it's not even a complicated, it's not even a complicated to do. And I just make rules, and pe- you know, people are constantly asking me for complicated rules about screen time and how many hours. And don't make it complicated. The car, food, just make it, just make it the car and make it food, food preparation and food eating. If you just do nothing about, you know, the car, when you're driving, you should, your your eyes are on the road. So you're not looking at your phone. So n- nobody else in the car should be on the phone either. Because that's precious time. That's precious time for talking. I mean, your children say, no, this is my, this is peak time for me to, you know, talk to my friends and catch up on my social media. You say to them, you know, I'm the parent here. It's peak time for me to talk to you. And I love
1: I love that. Yeah.
2: And it's like my peak yeah. time talking to you. And just you behave like a parent. And dinner and food preparation is peaked. T- maybe it's their peak time to, for getting in their social media hours. You say, you know, you don't understand it now. I'm not asking you to. It's not important. This is our time to talk. Put your phone away.
1: I, I love that. You know what, also, you talk about, Sherry, that is so interesting is the third places. Yes. I love that too. Can you speak to that
2: a little bit? Yes. Well, the reason that we're so lonely now Mm -hmm. is because we don't have all those places that we used to go where we where we were together alone. I wrote about alone together, but what about all those together alone places, like the coffee shop Mm. or the supermarket? I had a little supermarket near where I live. I sort of knew everybody there. People know my name. I, you know, they said, hi, Sherry. I said, hi, Josephine. Her name is Josephine. And I used to love her recipe for lemon poppy seed muffins. And she knew my daughter loved them. And she, I finally harassed her and promised I wouldn't, you know, sell them. And she gave it to me. I mean, (laughs) we had a whole thing. And I mean, these are the relationships. These are the texture of life that make us feel like people. And when you take those out of life, you're taking out a lot, the marketplace and even a grocery store, the checkout line, the the cafe, the little restaurants you go to, the museum where you kind of know, I mean, all the things that, that give our lives texture. And that's why we're so lonely in the COVID, you know, during these COVID times is because our life has become flattened. To what we can do alone, and then even in our little families, and then what we can do in front of screens—that's not—that's not not what we want to be. We want to get back to the full embrace of the human, includes these other places of more casual, of more casual connection. That really, and we have to nurture them, because if we don't, again, if we don't nurture them, Mm -hmm. we're left with very isolated communities, and we need to really build up our church communities, our local communities. We need to join things and make, make our communities richer. Um, you know, I mean, I think when America gets back to itself, it will have more garden clubs, you know, mm-hmm. it will have more clubs. It will have more, we'll begin to build that up again because I think we've realized that we mm-hmm. need it and we've missed it and we were not nurturing it. We were not taking care of those places. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these spaces are super important and spaces that foster community. That's what we need. We need more of that.
2: Yes. And so I think that, again, this time of isolation has given us time to think, what have I missed and it's been more than just, you know, Well, I've missed my daughter. You know, now I have my daughter here for a weekend. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like treating her like you know, nine, And I'm treating her as though she's, I said, okay, I get to treat you like you're 10 years old and kiss you whenever I want to kiss you. And <laughs> I'm really treating her like an eight year old who I'm allowed to like, you know, just be all, you know, like over her, like a wet blanket, you know, because I just, I missed her so much, you know, so now we get—we're all allowed to, you know, be like that with each other. But we also need to—we also need to nurture all these places that really make us human and make us capable of these communities. So I feel—I feel very strongly about that. That people are going to sense if we give ourselves the flexibility, we are going to sense and have the good sense to recreate things that we were dropping out of. And now we're gonna say, hold on a second. Not so fast, not so fast. I mean, look at mm. how many book clubs. So mm-hmm. many book clubs. It's because Absolutely. I it's not because I need to read a book. <laughs> I need to be with people.
0: Yes, it's a human yeah. need. We need. Yeah.
2: This has been wonderful. I know. We we no. so do, you, do you meet with me every week? I'm hoping. I mean, do we get oh, together and just talk about yeah stuff all the time or was it just yeah. like a thing or it's like a regular <laughs> oh. club or why, what happens here how does, this, how does this work
0: let's do it let's do it yeah. we would be honored are you kidding me like a book club yeah. or how does this
2: go
1: yeah well, we were gonna ask you what what you recommend what
2: reading you recommend what other authors oh read? i am reading such a great book i'm reading two books By um so my book launch for um my book launch for um so the Empathy Diaries was with a, a woman, a great poet named Honor Moore. Okay. And um, the, the book launch was kind of she, she wrote a memoir called uh, Our Revolution, which was about her mother and her. Um, she wrote a book about her mother and she had found this was so wonderful. She had found her mother, her mother, her mother had given her before she died. Uh, materials for memoir, and she turned her mother's materials into a memoir, but it had a lot of resonance with my book because, of course, my book is about what should I do with my mother's life and my mother's secrets, so we mm-hmm. had a lot to talk about, so I highly recommend this, um, this, this book called the Honor More, My Revolution, mm-hmm. and it led me to another book by Honor More, uh, which is called uh, The Bishop's Daughter, which is her memoir about her father, so it it, the the the, what what, what's wonderful about these books is it's she's extremely psychologically minded and it's a Mm. and uh, she and she's a poet so she's able to really craft you know it's also about family secrets and i i highly recommend these and i'm thinking a lot about um you know uh how people's work and life is really so structured by these secrets because I've gotten, I mean, I should say that, um, you know, not to give away too much of the book, but it turns out that my, that my father was part of a group of men who, uh, who, who sort of uh, thought they were scientists mm-hmm. and treated their daughters in a very particular mm-hmm. way. I, I've been getting letters since I wrote this book from women who share mm. uh, a certain kind of abusive secrets and um, i i've been thinking so much about you know the, the secrets that women share and have never and you know not all the secrets are sexual abuse you know where mm-hmm. we're so focused on you know sexual abuse secrets but there are secrets in families that have to do with not being able to say your name there are secrets in right. families that have to, you yeah. know, there are, you know, there are some people were told not to say they were Jewish, right. secrets in families were t- told not to say anybody was divorced, mm-hmm. and secrets in families. Uh, in my in my family, my 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 father was odd, and part of this, you know, just I don't. Made it's unclear what his diagnosis was, but he was odd. And part of my story is that my mother thought that I would be unmarriageable if it came Mm. out unmarriageable. Mm.
1: If it Mm -hmm. came
2: out that I had an odd father, that people would not want to marry me because it might be genetic that I was a little odd. Wow! Warning to suitors. I mean, I, I mean, and so there are all these women out there whose mothers tried to hide. That, there's, that there was any, you know, yeah. potential mental illness in their families for fear that their daughters would, yeah. you know, would be tainted. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, what that's I've been getting point. about secrets and it's just, um, it's just fantastically interesting. Yeah. So I wow. want to thank all the people who have been writing me. And I mean, I just feel as though I have a com- wonderful community of readers and Please buy the book and write me. And I love Absolutely. reading. I just love reading the empathy diaries. I love, I love writing back to you all. It's just so wonderful. It's, oh my God. Well yeah. you guys can you guys can write me too. And I <laughs> I really do look forward to chatting again. That would be um, awesome. yeah, was, oh yeah, this was incredible.
0: Yes, we would love to have you back. Thank my you. Pleasure.
2: Really, yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, great
0: you so much. Before you go, we have a big announcement we're going to make. Okay. Um, and we're really excited. We're a year old, as I think you've heard. And, uh, Sonia, we are about I'm to... plug, plug my
2: computer in. Okay,
0: cool. cool. Um, We're going to do something big. Sonia, what's happening?
1: We're rebranding.
0: We're rebranding. We have a new logo.
1: <laughs> oh, there's a cat.
0: He's surprised. What? <laughs> so we have a new logo and artwork coming. It's in the works. So our art okay, is. But
2: what? It's not going to be called "Rethinking Humanity." Oh no! It will be "Rethinking Humanity."
0: Yes. We're still going to call it "Rethinking Humanity," um, but it's go, the artwork, our logo. That's what's going to change. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So okay. yay! <laughs> I mean, it's this is art, Cherry. I made in Anchor. I just <laughs> made it. Just like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I'm
2: delighted to be on your any of your rebranding shows. This was oh. this was truly a great pleasure. Oh, love we this. loved it. What, we a love what a great conversation. What a great yeah. conversation. Eric yeah. Frome, David Reesman. My yeah. people, my people. Love yeah. it. Love <laughs> it. You were my people.
0: We are we would love to have you anytime. Of course, we'll be in touch about that. But thank you so much. Enjoy your day. We really, you. really
1: appreciate it. Thank you so yeah. much. We love your, your love your work, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks everybody for being with us. We'll see you next time.